Today's episode is really personal to me. Those closest to me will know that I've lived with a genetic chronic migraine condition, undiagnosed for the better part of my adult life. In today's episode, I'm going to open up a little bit more about my experiences, more than I have previously. Over the last seven years, I've struggled. I've struggled physically. I've struggled mentally. I felt hopeless, fearful, exhausted, lost and ashamed to even speak up about how I was feeling, both physically and mentally, while struggling through this. I'm really excited to be sharing this finally, and I'm so thankful for Dr. Reynold Cass and the work he's been doing with not only me, but the hundreds of patients he sees each year. If you're struggling with any chronic illness, mentally or physically, reach out to your support network. Welcome to the Alchemy of Success podcast. I'm Vince Fusco. In the last 15 years, I've done everything from stagehand to award-winning director, husband and father of two, creative marketing expert, and professional growth and success coach. I specialize in helping people find their purpose, reach their goals, and realize their dreams, while building their confidence and self-love to live a life at their full potential. This podcast is dedicated to the exploration of the human experience, the drivers of and the physical, mental, and spiritual metrics we measure success by. From personal life stories to inspiring tales from special guests, we'll be sharing our journeys of success and what it is to us. My hope is that this show will serve as a source of personal inspiration to spark your curiosity and ignite your mind, body, and spirit to your own brilliance. So you too can thrive in finding your own alchemy of success. Dr. Reynold Cass obtained a Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery at the University of Adelaide in 1987. He obtained his Neurology Fellowship in 1997 and undertook nuclear medicine training at the Austin Repatriation Hospital in Melbourne and the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Adelaide. Dr. Cass also undertook a Movement Disorders Fellowship at Westmead Hospital, Sydney in 1997. Yep. Further completing an Epilepsy Fellowship at the Austin Repatriation Hospital in Melbourne in 1998. From 2000 to the present, he is one of the only clinical neurologists admitting to Memorial, Calvary and Wakefield Hospital in South Australia. He's also a staff specialist at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in the Nuclear Medicine Department. Dr. Cass has over two decades of clinical research experience. He's devoted his career to providing rigorous, comprehensive and compassionate care to his patients and has had clinical subspecialities in headache, injection therapy for chronic migraine and is a PENS. Sounds like penis, but it's not. Yes. But it's not, no. But it's not. <laughs> Dr. Kaz's clinical practice offers a comprehensive headache service. These conditions, which include migraine, cluster headache, and post-traumatic headache, are disabling. They're often stigmatised, poorly understood, and it's becoming increasingly clear that these disorders are not just headache, but complex disruptions of brain excitability and homeostasis. I know it firsthand, having experienced this for, like I've explained, the, the last part, the better part of 15 years, really consciously being aware of my pain and, and what I've been going through. Um, but only in the last two years since uh, seeing Dr. Reynold Cass have I been um, lucky enough to understand the condition further um, to the degree that I at least can now, to the degree that he, he's been able to offer me and uh, find the right treatment for me. But I'm so so excited that he's here today to have a chat about all things uh, success, headache. Dr. Reynold Cass, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. No, this is an absolute trip in the sense of 
we met under the doctor patient um, relationship and I'm yep. so thankful that I was able to do so. Um, having having seen you now for the last couple of years and had the, the information you've shared with me about not only my condition, the work you do, it's been not only inspiring um, to see and to feel the relief <laughs> and the, uh, the impact of your work, but it's been inspiring on a personal level for not just your um, your medical, you know, merits, but your life in general. You have some extraordinary um, habits. You have some extraordinary gifts and and some extraordinary tales to share. And uh, to be able to chat with you today is awesome. So thank you. Yeah, look, I'm really pleased to be here. So tell me, like at the very beginning of it all, you are a world leading sure. headache specialist today. And with that comes some very big, um, you know, weight behind you. Yeah. In your position, and you mentioned yeah. when we were talking off air beforehand about how you got started in this field by giving this infamous talk, which I hope, yes, you, yes. I hope you'll share with us in a little bit. But um, yes. a very funny story. A very funny story. But is this what you always thought success was going to be or is this? Oh, no. Tell me, no, how, I, I, how did you get here? Well, look, it's been, um, I'd like to say I planned it all um, and that it was a linear thing, but uh, nothing's further from the truth. It just seems to be um, accidentally getting there, seeing the need, um, taking opportunities when they were there. Um, so I... Uh, started in neurology. I didn't even choose to be a neurologist. My my friends told me I should be a neurologist. They um, they tricked me into it by uh, before our exams uh, teaching them neurology. What and do you mean? So I, what what well, do you mean they tricked you into it like that? I don't well, understand. They, tricked into they, your degree. <laughs> they said to me, they basically decided among themselves that I would teach them neurology. Okay. And they thought that it would be a good fit for me because they thought, um, and I'll quote what they say, they, they think that I'm a non-linear thinker so that I kind of think, you know, outside the box. So they said, you know, if anyone can do this, you do it. Wow. So we preparing for our exams and uh, I taught them neurology. Um, I passed my uh, exams. Um, in fact, um, the exams in those days were awful. So I was the only one who passed. So other 15 other people went down. What? And I was the only one out of 16 people who passed. Yeah, it's true. Well, um, and when you say neurology, so like you went into neurology as a specialty, did you always know you wanted no. to be in the medical profession? Not yeah, even? No, not at all. No, no. My, um, my mother talked me into being a doctor. Um, I, I, I didn't study very hard at school, um, but I'm, I'm, you know, old now. And they, these days, uh, in those days, you could, um, basically, if you could pass exams, you could do well. It's, it's not assignment-based. Um, and I, um, my dad's a professor of geometry, so he went overseas for year 10, so I just, I didn't do it. I didn't do year 10. So dad was away and you thought, I'm just going to live my team. No, no, I went to England you know? with him. So oh, I you just, went with your dad? I was getting into school, yeah. Okay. Um, 
And was there was there a situation or was there a, an element of homeschooling? It sounds like you no, come from a very no. academic academic household, though. Yeah, you might be forgiven for believing that, but it's not what happened. I didn't do I didn't do anything at school at all. <laughs> and then um, I did year eleven and didn't do very well because I hadn't done year ten. Okay. And then I don't know what happened. Kind of at the end of first term, I think my my mother told me she'd give me two hundred dollars for every A. And I said to her, you know, that you've lost $1,000. And then I said, and then I thought, I don't want to lose to my mother. And I, I didn't want the money. I just don't want to lose to my mother. That's fine. Uh, so then I thought I'd study. And then I started doing better. Uh, and then I just said, well, I'll just keep going. Um, and then my mother sat me down and told me, look, I think you should be a doctor. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. I'll, I'll do all my, I was very close to my mother and I, I did what my mother told me. So it wasn't because I really wanted to be a doctor at the time. I was only 17 at the time. Um, but I did see that it would open up a lot of opportunity for me. Yeah. Um, so I thought it was a good career because, it, you know, there was lots of different types of doctors. It could suit lots of different types of personalities. You didn't have to be this personality or that personality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I thought it was a kind of a good kind of stepping stone. And how did um, you find your transition, I guess, like from, okay, I'm going to be a doctor on my mother's, I guess, advice? Um, yeah. Obviously, that field is so competitive. Mm. How, did, how did you then find going into that world? I struggled. I struggled. I didn't really like the competitive aspect to it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not that competitive against other people. Uh, I'm I'm possibly competitive with myself, but not against other people. So I, I didn't do well with that kind of competition, but now I kind of realised none of it really mattered. Um, you know, you just do your best and that tends to be good enough. You don't need to be competitive with other people. And is that um, something you feel like you learnt then and then have just maintained through? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. It was, look, when we look back at the competition that was in medical school, it was just absolutely irrelevant to what happened later on. Yeah. I would yeah. always advise people not to take part in that. In, I think in, it was bullying, you know, to be honest. I just think it was. Well, yeah, like I think that happens in a lot of fields, not just medical, obviously. But, um, yeah, you're right. Like I just I, I sort of agree on that level of just don't participate in it. And that goes for anything, like whether that be professional, bickery, politics, social, right. commentary. Yeah. Um, yeah, I always am of the. I think if you if you. If you participate in it, then you're fighting them on their ground. Yeah, I agree. and if you've got them, never fight them on their ground. Yeah. So um, what I should have done is actually just have faith in my own ability, and and just get it done, and don't worry about what they're thinking. Well, so let's talk about then when you're saying like, I love that. So you've got this mindset of I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to do my own best mm -hmm. and not participate in the crap. Did you okay. always know that you, you had an ability, not only academically or I guess how do you see your specialty myself. area now? You're, well, I guess like neurology, is that something that your brain is wired to understand? You know how you often hear of people who go on their specialty look, I, fields? I, I, and I think that's true in the end. I think what I did is I found something that uh, my brain is good for, um, but I didn't know that at the time. Um you probably know, don't you, that I was Australian junior chess champion. Have I told you that? This is what I was alluding to. I wanted to get to yeah. this because I know no, that whilst you I've might not say, way. yeah, while you might not say you were like neurology minded at the time, your brain definitely, did you know that you had 
a high intelligence because you started playing chess at a very, very young age. Now tell me about how you, you got into chess and your dad. So, tell me about your dad and chess. Yeah, well, my, um, it's quite funny. My, my dad taught me because he decided that I couldn't sit still. Um, so I probably learned it about six or seven. And by the time I was nine or ten, um, I think he he couldn't win against me. But he wouldn't say anything because that's my father's not that kind of man. And so what he did is he got me another coach. He tells me now that he used to wait till I went to bed and then read the book so he could actually know more than I did. But eventually even that didn't work. So he didn't say anything to me. He just got me um, got me another coach. I, I didn't even realise I was that great at chess until um, I played in the under-12, South Australian under-12s. This yeah. was being 1974. And I played with all these schoolboys who were, you know, you know, talked a lot about themselves uh, and they were, um, they weren't great. Um, so I won every game uh, and I got sick of them by the end. I think there was too much talking, to be honest. Uh, and then uh, my dad was pretty silent about that. He didn't really kind of say very much. And then when I was 12 and I was driving into the, to play in the under-13s, he just said, you're not playing the under-13s. And I'd say, but, but why not? I'm, I'm 12. And he'd say, there's no one to play. You have to play in the under-16s. That's it. I've made the decision. So he didn't, he didn't used to ask me, just tell me. So we, I thought I was playing in one tournament, and then I was playing in the under-16. So I was four yeah. years too young for that. And I was lucky enough to win that one as so well. You, so you were the under-16s at 12? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so what are you thinking at that time? Like, how did, like you got to feel good about that. What did your dad say? Is your dad? He didn't say anything to me uh, at all. I mean, I think he internally thought he's not that kind of man. He's not a, he's kind of an introvert, my father. And, so, um, Dr. Cass, tell me about how growing up, what were the, I guess, are these the things that I guess shaped you? What yeah, I was think so. It, what was it like growing up in your household? Um, and I guess what were the the big teachings that you you've taken with you into your adulthood and, yeah. and how have they changed or grown yeah i mean i think chess influenced me quite a lot because um it teaches you a lot of things you know it teaches you about respect for the opponent you know not being too arrogant about things because you can get sliced up if you open your mouth too much uh and taught me about hard work and fairness and strategy and, and i think the other thing that's uh, always helpful. It's always helpful to be good at something, because then you've got that kind of inner confidence that you can you can do it, because you've done something else. Yes, I like that. And so I always walked around with this confidence that I could. I, I don't know if the confidence was misplaced, but I felt that I could, you know, do most things. So if I put my mind to it, I believed I could. I could do it. And so, do you uh, so think- when I did medicine, I'd already achieved quite a lot by the time I was seventeen. Already, I'd already won the Australian Junior. So I already had this kind of confidence uh, about myself. And I did it my way, not someone else's way. So it's always good when you do it your way yeah. and then you're successful. And do you feel like that's something, again, you've been able to maintain once you yeah. left once you left studies and you started practising professionally, yeah, earning, yeah. earning a name in the medical industry yeah. alone is, is difficult. And do you sure. feel like you still play by your own rules? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, I've got my particular way of viewing 
the world and I I back myself um, and um, it's kind of interesting. I, I mean, I, I do go and ask other people what they think. I, I don't just go solely on what I think. So I normally choose people to oppose me um, rather than people that agree with me. Uh, and what normally happens is that um, they point out holes in what I think and then I modify the plan and then it's more successful. I love that. Um, do you do I that? I don't have people that I don't want people to agree with me. I want people to oppose me. And then what happens is I have a better plan. Um, and so um, a lot of the things that I think have all turned out to be true. Like when I first came to Adelaide 20 years ago, I mean, I had no idea how negative people were about headache because I was this young boy, I just finished. Um, you know, I was trying my hardest yeah. uh, in anything. So, you know, if anyone came to see me with headache, then I would just try everything I possibly could. But I didn't realise that that was not the case with um, other health professionals. Um, so they don't necessarily try as hard. Um, a lot of people, when they saw alternate medical practitioners, would give them a list of drugs to try and just basically throw them out. Um, and a lot of uh, patients who I've seen subsequently are quite traumatised by uh, the previous health professionals have seen them. Dr Cass, if I can, yeah. Look, if we can actually just take a quick tangent very quickly on this, I want to come back to your story, but this topic, while, while we are on it, on one of, my, one of my recent episodes, a guest outlined their experience of anxiety attacks, um, went to the doctor, received very quickly antidepressants with no conversation, no discussion around, yeah, I see you're so great. For those who can't see, which is everybody listening, the frown and the furrow that has just crossed Dr. Cass's face it says it all already in this first instance. Um, but it is the, the story of basically very quickly being prescribed antidepressants with little to no conversation or communication about the side effects, um, which then resulted in a, an a attempted suicide. Then from there, another guest has also had the same situation in which they've gone to the doctor for a physical condition, which is actually a mental condition or a mental Ill, a health issue or a mental illness manifesting itself into the physical uh, body, causing this pain, but the doctor is just saying, well, here's an antidepressant. It is a story that is heard too often. It isn't a story that is right, nor is it a story that is wrong. A number of medical professionals who I am friends with have reached out to me since these episodes went to air and they mm -hmm. said, I'm just, I'm just disappointed in my medical peers and their shit ability to correctly prescribe antidepressants. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, it obviously hits a nerve for them listening to it. Um, which is, I guess, what this is designed to do in the sense of it's an open platform to discuss all perspectives and all points of view and experiences. And whilst mm. these medical friends of mine are disappointed and, and angry about hearing this and going, well, that's just not a representation of all of us. You you know, don't paint all GPs or all medical um, workers with the same brush. And I said, absolutely, nor would we. Like, that's not at all what I'm doing. Um, but it doesn't then take away the truth or the experience of these people that are telling these stories because, unfortunately, yeah. it is. And and whilst we yeah. say, look, it is, it is the exception, we hope, and that it is... Um, 
it's those reasons that doctors are late. Wouldn't you agree? Like, you know, when doctors are running 45, 50 minutes late, it's because they should be sitting with those patients who are possibly suffering from a mental health condition, a mental illness. And rather than having, um, you know, a quick discussion and here's your pills, get out the door, but actually going through, well, look, here is what your options are. There are so many different avenues. What's your take on that um, and that situation? Where do you stand on that? Oh, look, I agree with everything that you say. I mean, I think many of these medications are prescribed too quickly. It, it's easy to blame the, the individual practitioners. A lot of this is a systemic issue yeah. and some of this is an educational issue as well. Yeah. Um, so I prefer system answers rather than, you know, blaming the individual person. Um, so there are system issues why and why GPs are under pressure um, and, you know, need to get the patient in and out the door. So those things are the things that need to be removed. And I think you need to be encouraged to practice, you know, better medicine. Uh, but there's a large amount of uh, very good medical practitioners out, out there who, um, uh, who who practice properly and give them the right time. But, you know, they're always late, and, you know. They don't necessarily get paid for all these things. So it, it is a complex thing. I think we also have to remember that doctors are just humans as well at That's the right. end of the day. Um, you know what I mean? These... And things change. So, yeah. you know, a doctor that was trained, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago would have a very different perspective than doctors that are trained now. So this is a this is an evolution of, you know, ideas. 100, 100 agree with that. Hmm. Well, thank you for talking about that very quickly. Let's go back. Let's go back yeah, to sure. you and, uh, and where we got to. So... You had achieved so much. You've got the confidence. You're going into practicing. You're playing by your own rules. Yeah. What? I'll try. Well, what happened was, um, so when I came to, uh, so I did a nuclear medicine training as well uh, because my dad said to me, so first my mother influenced me to do it, and then my dad said to me, you know, you know every great man has two careers. And I said, what are you telling me that for? All right, well, I'll have to do two careers now then. Is that what I have to do? He said, well, do it sometime, but have more than one career. And, you know, you know, when my dad says stuff like that, it's kind of bad. Like he's got seven degrees and he'd wow. already had um, to, you know, he was a school teacher, mathematician, um, he's been a lawyer, all sorts of terrible your things. Your mum and like dad that. sound like really, really important people in your life. Um, well, they are. Look, my, and that's I, I look around. And there's no doubt where I am is, is due to my parents. My mother was a very stable Christian woman with very good ideals about, you know, helping other people. She lives her life like that. She goes around helping people in the community. Uh, and my dad um, also was like that, has very similar ideals uh, about helping others and doing all that sort of thing um, and, and, and doing your best and having faith in in your best. And my dad does it his way, um, rightly or, or wrongly. Yeah. Um, and um, I think all that has been imprinted on me. So if you take my parents' influence and then you've got the kind of chess influence and then you've got um, me training with other people who uh, interacted with me and had these views about... Um, what I should do in terms of a specialist, all that amalgamated into um, being a neurologist. And I was also, as well, had this 
a great neurologist who trained me in headache. He told me I would do all this. Uh, and I said to him, I don't believe it. I don't think it, it can't be, it can't be this bad. And he said, it will be. Uh, he'd be laughing at me now because I'm doing everything and more. It will be he, this bad as in the, the headache problem will be this bad or no, your just career will be this big and blow up this big? Yeah, I didn't think it'd be blow up this big. No concept. I just, it just, uh, so then if you fast forward to me being in Adelaide and I'd see these people with migraine and, you know, I remember the first person I ever saw, she, she had 40 years of terrible migraine. And, you know, other neurologists had seen her and told her she had migraine. Yeah. So I said to her, you know, and I was 37, so I was relatively young, I said, uh, well, what's anyone done? She said, done. I said, well, yeah, yeah, you know, treat. <laughs> and they said, well, there is no treatment. And I said, that's not true. There is. So I put her on one tablet and no joke, cured. And she came back. About six months later, she's one of those very lucky people that was able to be treated with tablets. Yeah. And she said, why didn't anyone do this 40 years ago? And I said, I wasn't born. I couldn't do it. <laughs> but no one had done it. No one had done it. She'd seen two or three people and they'd say, oh, yeah, you've got migraine, but no one would actually do anything. And so even back then, Dr. Cass, migraine was, I mean, we still don't understand it to a great degree now in 2021. But so let's say 20 years ago, 30 years ago yeah. in the 90s, um, yeah. and this woman saying even 40 years ago, so wind the clock back, you know, she's looking at the 60s, late yeah, 50s. Yeah. What, yeah. What, what was always, I guess, the assumption and the difference between headache and migraine? Well, I think, I think there was a general view at the time um, that headache was just not fixable. Um, so a lot of negativity was probably related to past experience that treating um, headache and migraine was 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 not possible. Um, so in the sense of you could only have what aspirin or paracetamol or something just yeah. to to and dull that, it down, and that was it. Yeah, and that treatment of headaches was a futile issue and that okay. you were never going to do well with it. Um, and going back to your question about what's the difference between headache and migraine, migraine is a specific neurological syndrome where headache is, is one of the symptoms, um, but there's a whole lot of accompanying neurological symptoms such as nausea, um, you can get uh, sensitivity to light, sensitivity to sound, you can get neurological symptoms so you can have difficulty with speech. Uh, some of my patients get uh, paralysis of one side or the other, and sometimes they can have many of these attacks. So the syndrome of migraine is a much bigger concept than, 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 a, than a headache and has got a lot going into it. I mean, so these things were partially understood. So when I gave my talk, I don't think we've talked about So we haven't got yet. to your talk yet, but we are yeah, yeah. to hear that, so, I think. Yeah, so what happened was um, I was asked to give this public talk. Uh, this was in Canberra. This was in um, 95. Um, and I said, oh, well, you know, how many people are going to turn up? They said, oh, just about 20. So I said, oh, just 20. I won't prepare it. And what was, the, what was the talk on? What was it supposed to be It's going to be a talk on migraine. Okay. And were you presenting anything? You were presenting something new to? No, no. All I was no. doing was presenting 
Um, just some basic facts about migraine. Okay. Just basic facts, that's all. So anyway, I, I walked into this lecture theatre and there were 600 people there. There was standing room only. And I don't know that this is true, but I think um, I think the audience is very annoyed because the two, I, my consultants had just spoken and they were very agitated. And I, I think that they're not great public speakers. The two so speakers before you, you're saying? Before, yeah, because I turned okay. up late. And I, you know, because I was disorganised, I just walked in with these slides. Yeah, a model. You're a model guest speaker at this point, rolling up late, <laughs> nothing prepared. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, and I just, well, I, I could do it off the top of my head mostly, and I didn't have to prepare too much. But you know, having six hundred people there was, was it's kind of when you expected twenty. Twenty, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so they were watching me put the slides, and they were so angry they were watching me put the slides into the carousel because that's how long ago it was. So I gave this talk that I, you know, thought was reasonable. I just said, this is what a migraine is. This is what the pre-migraine symptoms are. This is what happens with migraine. This is what happens after migraine. Um, and I didn't realise this, but the talk was was videoed. Um, so no one had asked me. I just walked in and just did it. And then after that, I got all these uh, patients from other cities. So I was in Canberra. So I got these, these patients from Melbourne and from Sydney and there were mainly women between 20 and about 60. And I'd say, why do you want to come and see me? I'm like not even in the same capital city. And they said, yeah, but we saw the video. We want to come and see you. At least you're sympathetic. You understand Because we're sick that. of being told that we're crazy and that the, the migraine is because we've got psychological issues. And you see one of these patients, you go, well, okay, maybe there are, maybe they're not. Then you see the second, then you see the third, and you don't think there's anything wrong with any of these patients at all. And then you get this idea of just, you know, what was happening out there because you don't remember that. We train in public hospitals. We don't train outside public hospitals, so we don't really know what's happening out there. So you got this view that, gee, you know, headache's quite important. If I hadn't given this talk, I'm not sure I'd be here. I wouldn't even know. And so wouldn't have been part of my training. Even with, you know, at the beginning you mentioned you, you were tricked into neurology by your friends because they thought it would be a good yeah, fit yeah. and you landed on your feet. Your mum said you'd yeah. you know, be a doctor. Again, you've gone down that path. So once you've done all this and you've given this talk now, you've realised how big a problem headache is. Yeah. What, is that the reason why you chose to specialise further in headache and migraine? Because there was a yeah. hole there? Or is it something like are you a sufferer yourself? I know in other talks you've given, you've yeah, mentioned yeah. that you've, you suffer migraines. Are yeah, you so a, it was a couple of reasons. I mean, I, I kind of realised how big a deal um, headache was to the community because we had some quite animated discussion during this talk and I went, oh, well, there you go, that's a big deal, isn't it? And then and then when I used to go to conferences, the, they were very negative about headache, you know, so they, you know, there wasn't much written, we didn't have much training on it, no one talked about it. And then I came back to Adelaide and I just started seeing these people who were basically undertreated, not even normal things had been done. Yeah. And they were very negative about it all. And I just said, well, I'm not doing this. I'm just going to throw everything that I can. And if I can't fix it, it's not because I haven't tried hard enough. And, and what happens is when you've got that attitude, you know, you do help a lot of people. So I got a lot of positive feedback <laughs> from the patient saying, you know, at least you're trying to help us because everyone else doesn't try. 
Yeah, yeah. And so I started getting, you know, you get more and more annoyed about all these, about all these um, uh, things. And then I just went, well, you know, I'm just going to try my hardest with these people. So a lot of it's just effort-based. Even neurologists I really liked were very negative about headache. Okay. And so is that just because it's misunderstood? Yes. Yes, I think so. I think there was a lo- many decades of poor response to treatment. Yeah. Um, and what happens is that when you treat a patient and you don't get anywhere, there's a tendency for the medical profession to blame the patient. So, you know, a lot of these patients get blamed. They, you know, they say, oh, well, you've got a psychological issue. Uh, that's why you're just a, another woman or man with, with headache. It's not that serious. Um, so there, there was basically a, um, the patient was not validated in their symptoms. And, um, you know, and it, patients weren't even referred to neurologists. A lot of patients have never seen a neurologist, even though they've got terrible headache. It doesn't even enter the general practitioners or the patient's um, mind to be, be referred. And I'm, I'm standing, standing here in a deeper silence as you say all this because this is exactly my story. Yeah. So um, for those who maybe haven't heard the last couple of episodes or are just joining us for the first time, um, so I at 15 had my first, I'd had headaches before, but at 15 I remember having my first headache and being like, whoa, like I need some Panadol. And then realising across a number of weeks, like this hasn't gone away to the point where it had been months, like three months. And I remember saying to mum back then, like I've had this headache for so long. And look, I was I was at school all day, dancing class after school, singing class after school. I wouldn't get home till like 9pm most days. So I guess like a very, very active lifestyle. People go, you know, maybe he's burning out. Maybe it's growing hormones, which is what the doctors then were saying. So that was sort of it. And then it became just sort of, I guess, numb to it, like this headache, it went away. Um, but it was then like my first migraine experience. And I've explained a couple of times, but my mum used to have migraines. I remember growing up, like, you know, you'd always know when it was a migraine day, curtains closed, doors closed, silence, like poor mum, she couldn't talk. You mentioned some of the symptoms earlier, um, of which I'll, I'll cover some again, but yeah. Um, you know, I remember that very vividly. And then I remember in high school having my first migraine attack. It was just this, it was any, I remember saying like, this is not a headache. This is like, I thought I was having a seizure. I thought maybe I was having some, like, I don't know if I'm having a, I'm having a, a epileptic fit. I'm not sure, but it was just the most severe stabbing pain in my head behind my eyes directly. I could not even hold my eyes open if I wanted. It was excruciating. Mm-hmm. And then, like, my body just felt like lead, like it just shut down. And I remember literally crawling into a, a clump in the corner of the music room and just having to sleep there, like just then and there, like, shut down mode. That was the first time I was sort of like, this is a new new territory. Saw the doctor, sounds like a migraine episode, 
just have some Panadol, rest, you're very active, go through that motion. That's pretty much the same advice I received for a very long time, given that I do live a very active lifestyle with the performing, yes. the producing, the you know work and, and a, a family and everything. But that was always just the assumption as well, like you're just burnt out or you're just too stressed or even though you don't feel stressed, it's all subconscious, it's your mental health, you're stressed. Mm-hmm. It's not it's stress. It's it's a very and and look so and I agree. Like you know, okay, I'll change things in my life. So I've removed responsibilities. I've removed uh, you know things that I need to be doing. I've removed things that I don't need to be doing that I used to do. Mm-hmm. So I've got a great balance. I'm still suffering. Um, the, these migraine attacks then became yearly, almost to the day. And I remember um, telling you as well that it would be like the day off, the day that I would seem to have off when I would also mentally relax, which is probably, I guess, in association. Yes, the stress doesn't help, but my body would then have that crash day and I would come down really hard, not be able it's to very see. Yeah. They talk about weekend migraines. So when people are not yeah. working and they're not just, and they sleep and they should feel well, they often get a terrible migraine. Yes. Um, on the on the Saturday, which is when they sleep in because they're not working. Well, that's often what would happen to me. And I remember like just waking up feeling as if I had had my head smashed in with a Bessa block and I can't see, I can't talk. I found I often couldn't speak. You mentioned that. Yeah. Um, and I and like my body would flush hot and cold. Um, it just sort of varied in severity, but it would happen this sort of once yearly. Then it became six monthly, then three months, and I don't know, like if that rhythm is just because I seem to structure my own year in quarters or whatever, but it just always felt like it was working in like yearly, six month, quarterly, monthly, weekly, to the point where I was really actively consciously like my body can't move. Like every single day from for the last, at least for the last sort of seven or yeah, seven to 10 years, it has been increasingly worse only to the point of, um, where you've seen, you know, I've been hospitalised a couple of times. My worst episodes have seen me um, completely rendered of speech, can't see. It feels it feels like your body's shutting down and it's a very scary place to be when you're conscious still. Like it feels like I'm trapped in my body yes, and you can't do anything. And that that's on the more severe end of the spectrum of an attack. Um, and that was two years ago, that one there. That I'm, that I'm yeah. reference is sort of my scariest. Yeah, it's, it's a very familiar story. Um, you know, a lot of intermittent migraine becomes chronic after about seven to ten years. So a lot of people get uh, a migraine that's not that common. They get it when they're a, a teenager, and what happens is it becomes more frequently and more severe, often over a, a seven to ten year gap. Um, and what happens over that period of time is they they tend to have more and more explanations about why they're getting this headache. They're stressed. They're tired. Yeah, it's my diet. I change diets. I've done, you know, I've seen a dietitian. I've seen the naturopath. I've had acupuncture. I've had Chinese cupping. I've been hung upside down. I've been smacked with a bamboo stick. I've been spat on by priests. I've been, like, I've tried everything of the worldly realm and the not worldly realm to try and find something. and. You know, when it comes medically, again, I've, I've, I love my doctors. I adore my doctors, and I've always had fantastic, oh. fantastic um, doctors looking after me my whole life. And, oh. and with the once I finally had 
it was a, it was actually a change of location which led me to my 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 daily doctor i suppose my general gp um mm. who's now seen me for the last 10 years and been wonderful but it was him who gave me the referral to see you after yeah. really hearing my pleads after you know i'm there weekly almost and saying doc i've i can't keep doing this like either set me up with a frequent flyer program for your practice and get me some points because i'm here that often or <laughs> Send me to to see to see the big yeah. uh, the big man if you can, and so yeah. it was it was luckily at that time as well it had sort of escalated so frequently for me that I was missing weeks of work I was missing um, huge huge lifetime milestones and our family events and things because I I was <sighs> just couldn't move shut down yeah. like a p- potato state I call it yeah it's very common it's very common it's just so when it comes to seeing you and I bring in this report because I was using a, an app to track every migraine as well to again further understand the data I'm a data nerd and I love understanding yeah, yeah, yeah. data and I love facts data's, can, data's great so data's looking at it um in my app migraine buddy shout out perfect not sponsored but heck I love it but I print out this report and I bring it to you in my first appointment and it says there have been 38 migraine days out of 42 days tracked in that in that yep that period yeah and, terrible. You, and I'm saying to you it's not that bad when I say it's not that bad tell me about how many patients like myself don't realize because as you said it builds gradually over time over this 7 to 8 uh, sorry, seven to ten year period. Over that time, mentally as well, you're building a resilience not only to the stigmatism around it or the fact that you go, I'm sure I'm in pain, but I can't tell anybody because I sound crazy, um, or I'm yes. just being told I don't have a headache. Um, yes. But but physically um, and mentally, you're building up this this resilience. How many patients do you see who come in and think? It's not that bad because they've now built up a physical tolerance. They've programmed their brain every day to go, it's not that bad, and still go do everything they needed to do. Because what yeah. I've what I've now learned through this whole process of really having to stop and we've discovered the cause of it and now we're treating that is it offered me the opportunity to see how bad I was and my baseline every day. And yet I still get up and deliver every goddamn day. Yeah. Now it's common, it's very common. And so, why majority majority of my patients don't know how bad it is because they've they've normalized what's not normal. So, in my first consultation with them, I I try and show them that what their experience is 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 is, isn't normal. Uh, I'll I'll tell you this story I've got this patient, um, uh, this one relatively young woman who was about I think she's 36. And um, she came in with her husband and I said, uh, she said, I said, how often do you have headaches? She said, once a month. And I said, oh, you sure that's right? She said, yeah. I said, are you sure? I don't think that that's right. And she said, well, how would you know? I've just walked in. And I said, well, most people don't come and see me uh, if they're just having one headache a month and your husband has got his hands over his face. So... Are you sure it's once a month? What do you mean by once a month? And what she meant was once a month she wants to die, like die, yeah. die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. she did two young children and she said childbirth is a lot better than the migraines. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And I said, well, excluding the ones where you want to die, how much headache do you get? She said, oh, I get that all the time. But it's just not as bad because I don't want to die. And so that's exactly what, yeah, and that's what you've illuminated to me with my condition and, and like you're saying, so many others, is that we make it, the day that we have a migraine, and I say that in inverted uh, commas, a migraine yeah. is one of those episodes where it takes us down. So she's saying those days where I want to die, once a month I have one of those bad days. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, the rest of the time it is a constant state of headache. But the constant state of headache, is it's a spectrum, isn't it? It's a scale from yeah. headache to complete paralysis and severe episodes, you know, what we've talked about earlier. Um but living in that constant state of headache in itself is exhausting. It's you can't think straight. You can't. Right. Um, you, you just can't. I don't know. Like you can't even concentrate. It's so frustrating. It's debilitating. You can't, you can't function. And then, let alone mm. when you have these these accelerated episodes that take you down to that severe level, the, there's no recovery time because once you come out of that state you've got to get back on the race. You're either back to parenting, back to work, back to something. Do you know what I mean? It becomes increasingly more difficult just to, to keep up. So for me, Dr. Cass, we mentioned earlier, like the medical, and you mentioned one of your patients in your example earlier who had the pill after 40 years that, she, that you prescribed her and cured magic, one of the lucky yep. ones that it worked for. I could only ever speak from my experience. I say that all the time when I offer a story, just so I'm very clear in that. Sure. Over the last 10 years, I've been on 15 plus different medications. Yeah. Um, okay. Not through any desire to be on that many, not through any push of my medical recommendation, but through the process of um, trying to find a relief or a something to combat yep. these symptoms of constant headache because Panadol doesn't cut it, Nurofen doesn't cut it, Two neurofin, like, do you know what I mean? I'm not even going to go into the quantities or the drug types or names for the sake of there's no need to at this point. But um, having gone through that and then to even be accelerating my pharmaceutical intake because we wanted to get to a medical trial. So very quickly you, you were able to look at me and my case and my report and my medical history and say, Vince, you're not crazy. You offered me that relief. You said you yes. do have chronic migraine, but it's chronic. And the reason that there is no medication working for you is because yes. it's a genetic condition. Now, when yeah. you said that, that changed my entire world in a split yes. second because that was never something I had considered. It was never something that had been spoken about from or considered from my GP, I guess, because like you said, that's not an area they're necessarily trained in or you may not know yeah. about that. Um, but the consideration that, well, if it's genetic, why no medication would work? So, yeah. you know, for us to get to this wonderful treatment that I'm now on, this antibody yeah. treatment, a manufactured antibody to treat my, yeah. my condition, we had to go through a medical um, 
series of other medications to get there. Yeah. So again, even that process of going through like two or three rounds of two or three different medications has so many different yeah. things and, and side effects to your body. And whilst we were very smart in the way that we had um, approached it for my condition and my, my lifestyle to balance it out, there were side effects that were encountered. You know, there were um, really bad days of some down depression. There was weight gain. There was uh, skin breakouts. Um, there was all these things that you sort of go through that, again, just impact the individuals. How do you find dealing with people, um, your patients, who are, who are struggling through that process and what's the advice that you offer them? Well, look, I, I try and normalise the process for them. I tell them, uh, and the research is very clear about this, is that if you've got chronic migraine, um, you know, the, the failure rate of medication is very high. And in fact, at the end of 12 months to two years, 70 to 80% of patients have stopped their medication. Yeah. And that's either because of side effects or it just doesn't work. Um, so I wouldn't have put you through 15 medications. Um, the standardly what we do is, uh, and this is kind of the law, we try people with three preventative drugs. Uh, and then I offer patients either treatment with botulinum toxin or your treatment with an antibody or continue on with a medication. Um, but I say that the medication has got its issues and this is well documented. You gotta remember that medications were not, uh, the medications that, that treat chronic migraine were, were invented really to treat intermittent migraine, not chronic migraine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Chronic migraine is a different condition. It's not just a worsening of intermittent migraine. The other thing is that these, these medications, it was noted clinically that they improved people with headache. They weren't, it wasn't designed to treat people with migraine. Yeah, yeah. So you've got a concoction of drugs that were invented for other reasons that improve headache. Um, and, and it's not surprising that you don't do that well. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people get side effects, particularly women get uh, a lot of side effects um, to... Um, medications so they, yeah. they stop them. It doesn't work and it gives them side effects. And let me be clear as well, like when I say 15 medications, and it's not even just specifically migraine medication, specific migraine medication, um, there would be at least 60% of that. Like there is at least six yeah. different types of just migraine, whereas yeah. the ones prior to that, we weren't treating migraine, we were treating other things, which leads us to the next part of this tale where we we, yeah. we went through this process. Unfortunately, the clinical trial we were trying to get to for myself, I was unable to get on in the end, which again was a little bit disappointing for myself, but it, it yes. was also an opportunity to explore further treatment. And we, we did go down the Botox treatment. So yeah. every, every 12 weeks I'm in the chair and I've got Dr. Cass injecting me 31 times in my head around. Yeah, the, right. just So just for um, listeners, you'll be able to explain it much better than I can. Whereabouts on my head um, and, and where and why do we do sure. these 31 injections? Um, there, there are um, six exit nerves around the the skull. There's two at the front, two at the side, two at the back. And what happens with Botox is that we inject either side of those nerves. So there are set injection sites. And the idea uh, and the original idea behind this was to uh, reduce a hormone called substance P. So P, P for pain. And so the idea is that you reduce substance P in the skin around the skull 
Mm-hmm. And then what happens is the brain can can see that there's reduced substance P in the skin and it reduces it inside the head. I met the guy who invented it. So invented he invented this treatment. Yeah, yeah. He um, he took a punt. Um, the Botox was invented by an ophthalmologist mm-hmm. who was actually using it to um, prevent congenital squints. And they were in the same department. Right. And they knew that Botox had lots of properties. So he asked his head of unit, can you please just let me try this? Because I've got these guys with chronic headache that I, I don't know what to do with. They failed all treatment. And he, he tried it and it worked. That's how, wow. that's how it's. Well, it was the first treatment that offered me relief. Yeah. And even that sense yes. of, I mean, it sounds far worse than it is 31 injections in the head. It does hurt. Yes. It does, yes. Um, you know, the next day I often find I'm a bit of a bit of a crash. My body's a bit like, whoa, yes. the next day. Um, but after that, I do get these wonderful days of relief. It's not completely yes. gone or a miracle drug, but it is a different setup. It also relieves a lot of pressure in my muscular uh, setup as well. And that's yes. something that like physio comes back every week and says, yeah, you can always tell when you've had your Botox treatment, you relax that little bit more from the nerves under your neck where, you, where you're doing it at the bottom of my yes. hairline there. Um, but every 12 weeks I've been having that treatment and that's been offering great relief for, like myself, so many. And then this antibody, luckily, on a whim for me last year, happened to be in the right place at the right time with one spot left on yes. this, uh, this availability scheme for me. Um, yes. So happy to be on the program. It's a manufactured antibody. And I guess so yeah. the condition that I have, Dr. Kess, CGRP, migraine, calcitonin gene-related peptide migraine. It's um, beyond those six release points that you mentioned around the skull that release that protein. When this protein is released, what's happening in the brain and what is causing this shutdown across the body through this episode? So, so... It's always been known, it's been appreciated for a while that migraine is a receptor disorder. Um, It's not clear what receptors everyone has, but we know that substance P is important, um, for instance, because Botox works in a large number of patients. Um, And um, before CGRP was invented, the guy who invented it um, came to my rooms and said, this is going to be the next big receptor. Um, so when substance P was in was discovered, they they looked at the other receptors to see what their mode of action is. And CGRP is a receptor that causes inflammation and causes vasodilation. So it causes the vessels to dilate. So you get an inflammatory response. Uh, and this is normally in the distribution of um, one of the cranial nerves, the trigeminal nerve. So it explains a lot of the um, symptoms of migraine. So if you get a patient with migraine, you can see in the saliva and their blood that the level of CGRP goes, goes up. Right. So it's known to be a biological target. And the way the world works now is that if we have a protein that causes a disorder, you can make an antibody towards it. And they're, what they're, they're called monoclonal antibodies, which means that they're only directed to that receptor and nothing else because you can't give an antibody to someone because you'll you make them unwell yeah and so the, these monoclonal antibodies are everywhere throughout medicine so well, they're in you know arthritis asthma yeah uh, you know, 
And, um, and so I've been lucky enough to be on it for the, this is my third month, fourth month yeah. rather, um, and phenomenal, phenomenal results in the sense mm. of um, it's a monthly, for me, a monthly injection, self-administered, just under mm. the skin, um, and I can immediately feel a difference almost within, say, an hour. Um, yeah. I'll feel a difference physically. Um, but then by the next day, I really feel it where I wake up. And it only really happened that sort of two days in after my first treatment where I woke up and I was sort of walking to the kitchen one morning and thinking something's not right. Like I feel light. I feel different. I yeah. feel silent in my head. I feel silent in my body. I feel joy. Like I don't know what this and you know who knows how much placebo effect may be in that. No, I don't no, know, but but physically yeah. it changed. Like there was no pain across my body. Yeah. There was no lethargy. That's the biggest thing. I can't believe how lethargic. Yes, I really was. And the like, my eyes, the pressure behind my my eyes, my head, and and just the pain across my body would be so tiring each day that I would just be cactus come, you know, I finish work, I've, you know, we go upstairs, have dinner with the kids. By the time we put the kids down, we are pooped. We are in bed at like 8.30, do you know what I mean? And there's no yeah. energy. And then the next day you wake up feeling like you've been beaten up in your sleep again and, and yeah. you, you start again on this Groundhog Day of physical and mental, you know, battling. But then now to wake up and feel this, I just have a spring in my step. I, I can't believe the difference. And it's it's incredible. You did say to me early on when we first started looking at the treatment a year or so ago, um, you know, they were yeah. showing fantastic results out of the US with some of these clinical trials with the mm. Botox in conjunction with the antibodies. And that's the treatment plan yeah. that I'm maintaining at the moment and having a great uh, result on. Um, with the monthly injection i do find that it work it wears off say for me about three weeks in and then there's about a week of just like lag where i'm like oh i'm back to normal yeah. i did experience one month where it did not take at all what are the what what could be the reasons for that if someone was experiencing like that dip in their treatment is it just because it's a new treatment no i think there's quite a lot of variability in, in treatment I, I, the longer you give botox you, you see this I've seen people who I've treated with botulinum toxin who said it just didn't work last treatment. And there doesn't seem to be a good reason for it. They're not stressed, they're not tired, they're not sick. Um, you look around to make sure they don't have a medical illness that might have made things worse. Yeah. Um, but I think there's a natural variability with treatment. Um, so I don't think it's um, uh, I don't think it's unexpected. Well, that's okay because right now, like I said, this month I'm back feeling absolutely yeah. fantastic the Lazarus yeah, I mean, experience is is, is um, very uh, is what people experience as well so they you know when I first started treating people with drug uh, you know I, I treated people who had failed botulinum toxin mm -hmm. and I remember I did a, a clinic and I saw the first lady and she was a teacher and she said uh, she sat down and said look I want my teacher's degree back and I said what do you mean what do you mean you can't she said, yeah, I can. I'm better. I said, you can't. You can't be better. You can't be better inside a month. What are you saying? She said, I want my teacher's degree back and I want you to write a letter. And I said, you've only been on it for a month. Don't you want to wait a little bit? Like, really, should we be doing this? And she's my most terrible patient ever. <laughs> I've thrown everything that I've ever had in terms of treatment towards her. So I was naturally, you know, 
a bit reticent about Lana, and she's back teaching. Wow. Uh, got better within a week, and she said, why am I better? And, and this is um, part of the thing with Michael, and I just said, look, you got to remember, this is a receptor disorder. Yeah. Either yeah. we treat your receptor that is causing your headache or we don't. Mm. And what's happened is that you've got this receptor and this is what's causing it. It's never been anything else because she's, you know, a female version of you. You're a relatively young person who doesn't have a lot of medical problems. Yeah. Who's got who's got a headache? So, you know, if you get the right receptor, you can you can treat it. I love it. And I'm so thankful that we did because it feels like I've got my life back, which is crazy to even say because you go, I got my life back. I don't even know if I've got my life back or if I've actually just gotten my life because I feel like I'm what experiencing something. Yeah, I'm experiencing something totally different. Um, like my head is clearer, my, my body's, sorry, Doc? Yeah, all the patients when you're successfully treated, they just can't believe the changes in their life. This, yeah. this is going to sound bad. I mean, the um, I've got a couple of female patients who were cleaning their houses and their families said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm cleaning my house. What, what are you asking me that for? And he said, well, you don't, you don't normally clean the house. Why are you cleaning the house now? And they realised they just felt so terrible all the time. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Like, they, and it's the little they things. They just couldn't clean their house because they just can't do it. I 100% agree with that. And it's like it's not just chronic migraine. It's any any chronic illness, even chronic mental health illnesses, um, like those things, they are so debilitating that you do miss out on yeah. those little things. You don't realise it either when you are fatigued because you go into that downward spiral as well. As you become more lethargic, more complacent, you then make more acceptance of it in your head and you sit in that little pit and it, you know what I mean? And it's the little yeah. things you take for granted, like cleaning your house, getting up, going outside, going for a walk. Um, mm. For me, it's the little things like I can't believe how different breakfast time is with my toddler. Um, yes, yeah. Because I do like we, that's wonderful. We, we get up first thing in the morning and we have breakfast, and you know it's a real hard struggle when you're not able to really participate. And I feel like an awful parent because I'm trying to nurse my migraine whilst right. you know munch a through a bowl of, of rice bubbles. Food. Whereas now I can sit through. You know we're having a great chat. We're having our rice bubbles, having a great time. It's a totally different thing. Yeah, yeah. You know I want to. You know let's run. Let's go to the park. Let's let's get out there. So yeah. Fantastic results um, so far. And, again, very, very excited to see what the future holds for migraine treatment. Let's, sure. let's go back. Let's get away from migraine treatment. Let's get back, sure. to, the, let's get back to the man treating the migraines. Um, yeah. Tell me about now that, like, you're doing this, right, you're making a big yeah. difference in a lot of people's lives. You're stirring up the headache community globally with your your practices, your conversation around the treatments and and all of this, do you believe that this is success? Yeah, I mean, I think you measure success. Um, they talk about the pillars of life, don't they? And one of the pillars of life is using your skill to be able to help um, other people. And I'm, I'm, I'm indeed fortunate um, that I decided to um, specialise in headache and these treatments have come along that have just made these amazing difference in people's lives. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, I think this is at least a part of success is, is actually using your, your skills as a doctor to be able to help other people. 
I mean, we, you know, there's so much crying in my office all the time. Hello. That's just from me. Everybody. everybody. (laughs) I went to a conference recently where, that, in fact, it happens globally. I thought it was me. I felt kind of bad that people cry. And then it happens everywhere with people with headache. They they actually say that when patients cry, you've probably, um, you've got them and you're going to have a therapeutic relationship and um, you're going to get somewhere. So I think that's obvious from the way that I look into those big brown eyes every time I come into your office that I, and, and it's funny because I do think that I definitely, like in my mind, I know there is a degree of romanticism around our relationship because I'm like, you're a hero to me because you were able to explain it to me. You know what I mean? Like you explained it to me and you, you offered me the reassurance. Yeah. You offered me hope. You've offered me relief. You've offered me reassurance that I'm not crazy. Cause I was at my wits end too. Like I was really at that point where I wasn't even talking to a lot of people that I should have. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen this many times that people walk in and they're, they're just, They've believed they're in a hopeless situation. And I say long. For so long. That's the thing. Like I'm a hopeful person. So I know that like I know it's taken me 10 years of of constantly being told I'm wrong or constantly being told you're crazy. For me, like it's taken 10 years for that to actually maybe scratch the surface a little bit, enough for me to go, nah, like I'm not going to tolerate this. I'm not like I need to dedicate my life to figuring out at this point what is wrong with me and i and you know it was thankfully it didn't take the rest of my life took an extra six months and uh, a wait no, 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 but, but we got there. Out there for 40 50 years yeah just been and so that's why they cry because it's just so bad yeah. and you know i feel so blessed and fortunate to be able to um help these people and I'm, I'm i'm naturally an optimist um I, it's the way i play my chess it's the way i live my life it's the way i am I'm an optimist and I, I tell them the reason I'm an optimist and all this, I said, you've got to remember, you've got to understand how I think. If I see a young person who's got no other medical problems and they've got bad migraine, what's the likelihood that they're going to fail both treatments? Yeah. The likelihood is not that high. There are going to be some, but I think that we should be able to fix you. And they say, but what about all these things that we've tried before? And I said... You've tried a lot of things, but none of them were likely to work. So you can't use all those things that you've tried as saying this is a reason to be um, pessimistic. Yeah. And yeah. so this is so what I do is I, I talk to them and say that I think that we're likely to be successful. And I say, I don't say anything I don't mean. Yeah. I'm not just saying it. No, no, it's, yeah. It's what I think. And you were very clear with that, even like I can attest to my experience. Yeah. You're so clear with the medication and the treatment with everything as far as like if it's not going to work, if this is not good for you, you were so caring and, and clear up front. And that's something that I always appreciate. Yeah. With, so they, with, with the patients, they say, well, how do you know? We've done all this before. How do you know? And I say, what's the difference between you and everybody else? There is no difference. You are the same as everybody else with that. If I'm successful with them, why will I not be successful with you? Of course, I'm going to be successful with you on average. On average. And I thought of them further that in the future, we'll just get better and better at this. And what's going to happen is that the future generations won't even know you existed. They won't even know. What do you mean mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, they won't even know that chronic migraine was a thing. 
Exactly, because yeah, like, oh, because it'll be so far developed. Yeah, yeah. About? yeah, absolutely. And it'll become a piece of history that just gets smaller and smaller. That's right. Quite That's right. right. And okay. there, there are lots of diseases like that. So, you know, we might live in a time um, where um, chronic migraine um, will be a disease that's actually well controlled. But, you know, in this journey, you talk about success. What do you mean is success? A lot, a lot of it has been about uh, me not giving up, in, uh, you know, when everyone else was quite negative about it, um, trying every treatment that I can because I'm not letting a patient walk out unless I've tried everything that I possibly can. And even then, if I've tried everything, I'll send you to one of my friends to see if they've got any other smart ideas. Um, and so a lot of it's about persistence and and then understanding what the problem is and then realising that the previous approaches were wrong and mm. that if you've got the right approach, your success rate's likely to be higher. Oh, I love that. And that's not even just about practicing medicine is it is this something that you then so with all of your medical success aside yeah where where does your success sit in the holistic picture of dr cass's life when you look at all of it and you look at your family your home life your academic successes and professional successes where is your success where does it sit for you on on every level look uh overwhelmingly i'm very privileged to be able to help people i i am so lucky I can't believe I fell into this. If you told me that I'd be doing this when I was a teenager, there's not a chance in this world that I would believe you. And where do you, you know draw, what? What, what centres you? Like you're, it's a very demanding job and you, the, everything cool. you've explained tonight is, I know this is going to take a couple of listens for a, a few people, I'm sure. sure. But what do you do to balance yourself or ground yourself um, sure. on the day-to-day? Uh, well, I've got a few things that I do to, to um, ground myself. Um, uh, I mean, I understand that I, uh, that I understand a bit about a very small part of life. Um, so I tend to um, uh, have a lot to do with people who've got different skill sets um, to teach me about other parts of life. Um, I'm still playing my chess as well, so that's a different way of using your mind. It's completely different from medicine. Um, uh, I'm Mauritian, so I'm I'm uh, immersing myself in Mauritian culture. Um, I'm doing a lot of cooking with my um, parents. Uh, my dad's 86 and my mother's 80, um, and so they're teaching me about the culture of Mauritian cooking and about my relatives and my and my heritage. So I think, you know, if you do things outside uh, medicine and you, you um, look at other people and how they interact with society, I think that grounds me. I love that. Dr. Cass, I'm going to finish off with the 10 questions that I ask right. everybody at the end of each episode. Thank you again for your time this evening i hope this isn't the last time i get you on the show no. um there's so many other things i want to speak to you about no, no, i know I think, i've i'm happy to do it again let's be great all right here's the 10 here we go what um, is your favorite word oh favorite word oh my goodness me uh my uh what is my favorite word i haven't been asked that before uh, i think my favorite word is mauritius Perfect. Because it's about my culture, it's about my family, 
It's about history. There's lots of famous Mauritian neurologists as well. It's about that unique, you know, approach to life. I love that. It sounds like a very inherent connection as well. Um, yeah. And it embodies a lot of your beliefs and yeah, I love being what you do. Like it's great. Genetically Mauritian is great. Love that. What is your least favourite word? Um, my least favourite word is bullying. Bullying. I can't stand bullying. I just hate it. What turns you on creatively, spiritually or emotionally? Um, I think there are two things that, um, uh, that I like creatively. I like art. Uh, I think there's a few things I like. I like art. Um, I do like history. Uh, and I like, uh, I, I look at chess as an art, so I like my chess as well. What turns you off? Uh, I think bad human behaviour turns me off more That's, than anything. I just can't believe how badly people behave. That is my pet peeve and absolutely oh, I, just, I agree with that. What is your favourite curse word? Oh, I can't say that. You can. It's a podcast. You can say what you want. Oh, well, it's actually um, uh, I swear a lot in Mauritian so that no one will understand me. Oh, that's even better. Uh, uh, so, uh, but I couldn't possibly translate what I was going to say. It doesn't mean the same in Mauritian as it does in Australia. <laughs> I just couldn't tell you that. Okay. But there's, is- a, there's a thing that we so we've got this Mauritian expression for laziness. Okay. I won't tell you when we're in consultation. You'll Please. See. Do it under uh, doctor-patient confidentiality. Very rude while I'm saying it. It's fantastic. Can you say the word? How do, how does he, how do you say it? Uh, I, I wouldn't want to. It's just you so wouldn't even bad. You wouldn't even want to butcher it. Okay. No worries. Uh, no, I don't. I think people would want to know what it meant. I can't tell them that. <laughs> I'll look forward to finding <laughs> so out. I'll, I'll suss it out. Um, okay. What sound or noise do you love? Um... I think I, I, I like the, uh, I sit in the morning with my um, dogs just before I'm about to start the day and I really like the kind of morning um, uh, listening to the birds. I just think it's a very relaxing, beautiful thing. I love it. What noise or sound do you hate? Uh, I think I hate the sound of an angry voice being a bully. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Well, I... Um, before I was ever going to do medicine, I was going to. I was thinking about being a, a professional chess player, uh, and the other thing that um, was a possibility uh, was being a mathematician like my dad. Um, so, um, I guess if I had my life again, and I wasn't going to do medicine, I would have done probably something like maths or engineering. Love it. And if there was another profession that you would not like to do, what would that be? Um, I wouldn't like to be, I wouldn't like to do anything boring. I just couldn't cope. I couldn't what's do boring? Like, boring to some people is very exciting to other people. What, yeah, um, no, what's your boring? What's your boring? Um, I'd hate to be someone who just, um, I think the people I, I don't love are the people who, um, make everyone else um, uh, live by their rules or they make the rules the most important things of life when everything, you should be actually interpreting these things and sometimes applying these rules and sometimes not. And I just wouldn't like to be just applying rules and not worrying about whether they were right or whether they were wrong. 
That is one of the best articulations around rules and living to your own that I've ever heard. That's fantastic. That's great. Lucky last out of the 10, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, my goodness me. Um, I'd like God to say that um, I've lived a, a, a reasonable life. And then I've done somewhat close to um, what I could achieve in life. That's what I would like to hear. I love it. Dr. Cass, it has been an absolute pleasure tonight. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom, your knowledge, and for your constant push into the the migraine and headache world. It's so needed and it's wicked. I can't wait to speak to you again. I feel like this is as important to me to tell the story and finally put, I don't know, crystallise it. So it's very important for people to understand all this. I think so, absolutely. This is going to be so valuable and we'll definitely tee up another one. Very important work. I'm very proud of you. Thank you so much. That really means a lot. No, no, it's true. It's true. I mean it. I mean, it's very important. It's why I'm doing it. Why I'm doing it. I keep talking about it and I say, you know, patients need to understand these things and you're doing it. So that's great. Thank you so much. That really means the world. Talk soon. Have a great night. Additional resources and information can be found at drcast.com.au. That's D-R-C-A-S-S-E.com.au. Also, check out anzheadachesociety.org, americanheadachesociety.org or headacheaustralia.org.au. To continue the conversation, suggest a topic, a guest, or if you'd like to share your success strategies and journey, then connect with me and the podcast on Instagram at the real Vince Fusco. See you there.